Sometimes it's a little hard to tell the good guys from the bad guys. Which is worse? A tyrant that looks and sounds like a tyrant, or one who sounds like he might just be a nice guy? I think about some of the most confusing bad guy music ever to grace the stages of Broadway. Da 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 Sounds too lighthearted, like a like a lover singing a song through a field of flowers in the springtime. And then you listen to the words a little more closely. You'll be back. Soon you'll see. You'll remember that you, you belong to me. You'll be back. Time will tell. You'll remember that I served you well. Oceans rise. Empires fall. We've seen each other through it all. But when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. Da 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 da. Creepy, isn't it? Yeah, it's really creepy. I think about another pining lover who shows flashes of his future darkness on his first date with the Queen of Naboo, Anakin Skywalker, with Padme, out in this field talking about government, her life's work, and he begins to confess that he thinks the universe would be a better place if good people would just make others do what was right. And Padme says that sounds a lot like a dictatorship. And Anakin says, well, if it works, and we start to hear the music in our minds, even if it's not yet playing on the screen, music that we all know goes with the Dark Empire. Dun, 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 you get the point. So, today, we're looking at another artistic theme that exists like uh, King George III in Hamilton, or... Anakin's theme music in Star Wars to expose the evil empire. It's Revelation chapters 12 through 16, and today we're looking at just a few verses in chapter 13. Here in these majestic chapters that are full of symbolism that is still true, because, you know, some people will say, well, Revelation, you can't use that. It's just full of symbolism. They wave their hand in the air as if to say, well, it means nothing. But symbols always mean something. A stop sign matters it should be obeyed and symbols in revelation matter they should be heeded as well and so we're going to look at these signs that take place between chapters 12 and 16 they're a, a beautiful mysterious dark artistic masterpiece signs like a woman and a child and a dragon a beast from the sea and a beast from the land a lamb and people sealed to one side or the other there's angels with proclamations and a great harvest of grain and a harvest of grapes that are squashed to become a river of blood. Angels with bowls of wrath and finally an earthquake that shakes the world to its foundations and ends the present age. Then in chapter 12, verse 9, we find out for sure that the dragon is the ancient serpent. And John says, let's be clear, he is the devil. Let's use his other name. He is Satan. So John is very clear about what this symbol means. The dragon is the enemy of God and God's people, the source of darkness, the father of lies, the devil himself. And he gets thrown out of heaven. So Michael and his angels make war against the dragon. And he's kicked out. The people would say, hooray, they cheer, yay. But in the text of the story, when he's kicked out of heaven, he gets thrown down to earth and so in the poem in chapter 12, it says, 
Woe to you on the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And so the people go, oh no, here comes the darkness. In other words, the story that John is painting in his rich artistic world, in which he pulls from Old Testament scripture and Jewish myth and nightmares common to every generation, John paints a picture of a war from beyond this world that has come into it. Artistically speaking, of course, the war is truly very present in this world from its foundations. But we're reminded again of Paul in prison in Rome writing the letter to Ephesus who talks about this same struggle, but he does it in a way that even though he uses imagery is slightly easier to understand than this artistic portrayal. When Paul from his prison cell writes, our struggle, Ephesians 6, is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Paul says there's a darkness to the world we live in. The war is already here, and it's also in the heavenly realms. It's in the world in which we live, but it is powered, it is fueled. The engine comes from somewhere beyond spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And he gives us an array of armor and tools to use in our struggle, tools like truth and righteousness, the good news that we get to share of peace, that Christ has made peace, of faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. And after going through these pieces of armor, as Paul calls them, he will say clearly to the church in Ephesus, what his goal is that you would pray for me, to speak fearlessly as an ambassador in chains. Paul sees himself as being caught up in this great socio cosmic political struggle but he sees his role as that of ambassador a non-combatant one whose job is to speak words of peace into this chaos and as an ambassador in chains he says pray for me to speak fearlessly this relates very closely to revelation chapter 12 verse 11 which was not in today's reading but let me share it with you they the saints overcame him, that's the dragon. How did they overcome him? They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and that they did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. So this devil, this serpent, this dragon has been thrown to earth and he's furious because he knows his time is short. In verse 17 of chapter 12, right before today's reading says, the dragon went off to make war against those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And that's what introduces us to today's reading in Revelation 13, where we see the dragon who calls forth a beast and then another beast. I might refer to them today as the beast and beast junior. Sometimes they're called the beast and the false prophet as the second beast will be called later in the book of Revelation, but a beast from the sea and a beast from the land and the dragon, this unholy trinity, if you will. And so let's walk through the verses really quickly, just take a scan through chapter 13, 
so that we can see some of the details and you can familiarize yourself with these details. Revelation 13 verse 1, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, great symbol in Jewish thinking for a place of chaos and evil, monsters come out of the sea. You know, the old maps in the world that show a, sit, a ship being drugged down to the depths by some tentacles, and, you know, there be beasts, that kind of thing. And I saw a beast come out of the sea. This is still verse 1. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and each head had a blasphemous name. So the beast is a thinly veiled caricature of the dragon itself that also had uh, these seven heads and ten horns, although this beast now has ten diadems instead of seven. So the dragon in his fury as he gives power to the beast is even claiming more authority than he ever has before. And Verse 2, the beast resembles a leopard, but also a bear and a lion, and the dragon gives him power and a throne and authority. So, in one sense, this is bringing forward the images of Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees these animals that represent kingdoms in the world, and yet this is a composite beast, if you will, who's given a throne and authority. It clearly stands for some kind of government in the world. And this government, this composite beast, is given great authority by the dark enemy. Wow, it's quite a story. Verse 3, uh, we see that one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed and the world was astonished. So they followed the beast because he had been healed of this wound. And the word that's translated as wound in this verse is the word that is also translated as slaughtered whenever it applies to the lamb earlier in this book. So the lamb and the one head of the beast were both slaughtered, svadzain. And yet, here, the beast is healed, so the people marvel. He's an imposter, he's an imitator, really. He's doing what the lamb uh, did for real, but he's an imposter, and the people are in awe. They begin to follow this beast, verse 4, men worshipped the dragon. I mean, they're worshipping Satan now. And it's because he'd given authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast too. So they worshipped the one on the throne. And they say, these are important questions, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? So people are caught up in this. And they begin to think, no one can defeat this power. This is the greatest power. So verse 5, the beast uses his mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies for a set period of time. Verse 6, he blasphemes even God, slanders God's name and his dwelling place and the residence of heaven. So the beast is speaking the highest blasphemies he possibly can. Verse 7, he's given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. So the dragon gives the beast, again, this is this artistic portrayal, power to conquer the saints. And so the saints are suffering. He was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So earlier the lamb set free every tribe, people, language, and nation, and now the beast oppresses them and enslaves them again. All inhabitants of the earth, now verse 8, will worship the beast unless their names are written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. So there's hope in the story that if you're in the lamb's book of life, you are not worshiping the beast and the dragon. And then there's this dark poem, a dark poem, that whoever is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. So even though the saints are in the book of life, they might go into captivity. 
And if anyone is to be killed with the sword, then with the sword he will be killed. Some of the saints are going to die by this beast and by its hand. And yet their name is in the book of life. And so, verse 10, very important line, probably the takeaway you should notice. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. This story is a story about patient endurance and faithfulness on our part, those who follow the Lamb, those who honor God. Now we could walk through the verses about the beast that comes out of the land and you'll see many of the same kind of things. The parody continues. I'll go really fast here through this part, but verse 11, the other beast has horns like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. See, he pretends to be the lamb, but he really has the voice of dark power. He exercised the authority of the first beast and made the earth and its inhabitants worship that beast whose fatal wound had been healed. He does signs in verse 13. Uh, he even, in verse 14, is given power to do on behalf of the first beast these kind of deceptive signs. So he sets up an image of the first beast and causes it to speak. He breathes into it. He's a parody of the breath of God here giving life to some kind of idol, as if John is reminding people, remember, there are real dark powers behind some of these things. And verse 15, uh, this verse 15 is where he gives the breath to the image of the beast. In verse 16, he forces people, whether small or great or rich or poor, free or slave, to get this mark on their hand or their forehead. And they need that so that they can buy and sell in verse 17. So the marketplace gets drawn in to this this dark world. And then verse um, 18, famous verse here says, this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. Or you might translate it as a man's number. Either way, his number is 666. And that rings a memory with a lot of people. We had a teacher whenever I was in high school, substitute teacher, who was very superstitious about 666, probably because of this verse. And some of the students knew this and they would write the number on the whiteboard at the front of the room when they knew he was substituting and he would not come in the room. He took that so seriously. And so they would have to bring the principal down. The principal would come in and erase the board and scold the students and then People would do it again because they saw how effective it was. People know that this number, that this story, in fact, is a dark story. And it's frightening. It's a confusing, frightening story of imposters and deception and lies and glamours that deceive people and a parody and false pretenses and pretenders. So just to sum up some of the themes that we've seen in here, look at the way that this dark presence has no battle plan of its own, but is always an imposter of God's way, corrupting God's way. The, the dragon and the two beasts are like an unholy trinity. The true God, Father, Son, and Spirit is parodied in a broken way. The lamb is sent from heaven to die for others, but the dragon is kicked out of heaven and intent on war, and the beast actually kills. The lamb is slaughtered, the Svadzain word that we talked about, the beast is wounded or slaughtered with the same word because he's trying to be like the lamb, but he can't be like the lamb because he uses dark power. 
The lamb's work leads to worshiping God earlier in Revelation. The beast work leads to worshiping Satan. The lamb frees people from every tribe and language and nation, but the beast oppresses. And the beast, as I've mentioned, is a composite picture of evil. Just like the woman in chapter 12 that gives birth to this male child we understand to be Jesus. The woman is also a composite picture. She's Eve, she's Mary, she's Israel, she's the church, the people of God, she's all of these things. And I say that because the way that this artistry works is the artist John pulls images from all across scripture to describe the woman and her plight as she goes into the desert and is rescued by God. She stands in the place of all of these people. And in fact, she stands in the place of us today. The people of God who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And the beast is not just a person, as if we need to read the newsprint and look into the future and try to find out who this one bad dude will be. The beast is not Anakin Skywalker or King George III or any other person in history that's been presented as being 666. Oh, there's a person who sits in for the portrait. That would be Nero. Nero sits in for the portrait of the beast. But this is beyond Nero. The beast itself, as I mentioned, is the composite image from Daniel 7. It's all the kingdoms rolled into one, which is to say kingdoms act this way. Kingdoms give in to the darkness. Governments of different kinds give in to the darkness. And so Nero sits in for the portrait. He does this in several ways. There was a myth going around the Greco-Roman world at this time that Nero, who had slit his own throat, was actually out there alive, lurking somewhere, waiting to come back and take his throne back. One of the great myths is actually recorded in the Jewish pseudepigraphal writing, the Sibylline Oracles. And in that writing, it talks about Nero coming from the east with the help of the Parthian army that Rome feared, one of their great enemies at this time, to ride back across the Euphrates and conquer Rome and take back his throne at the helm of the opposing team. Kind of like if Tampa Bay Buccaneers beat the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl this year with Tom Brady at the helm, right? A great story of revenge or whatever, except for darker, darker with Nero at the helm. This abusive, crazy person Nero. He sits in for the image because of the rumor that he was wounded and healed. He sits in for the image because the number 666 means Caesar Nero. One of the ways that we're sure of this is because his name, Caesar Nero in Hebrew, actually uh, adds up to this number 666. This is not 666, it's 666. But there's a textual variant here in the Bible some ancient manuscripts say that the number is 616, 616. And Caesar Nero's name is the only name that fits that pattern too because if you drop the one N off of the end and make it sound more Latinized, it adds up to 616. So there's actually several things in this chapter that all point to the fact that Nero is sitting in for the portrait of the beast and he is a fine figure for it because of the way he lived and the way he abused his power. But this is beyond just Nero. It's not just about him. The composite nature of these images show it's not a single threat from one time and one locale that John has in mind, but 
This is a story that is a way to discern evil power from God's power and evil systems from God's kingdom. And so the question we might ask about human history would be this. When, in fact, does the beast not appear? When in history is there not corruption? Is there not darkness? Is the dragon from the world beyond not influencing people with power to become corrupt and to do great harm? When, in fact, does the beast not appear? So, for Christians in every age, and you and I are no exception, this calls for, as verse 10 says, patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Patient endurance and faithfulness. In other words, we use Revelation 13, story though it is, as a frame through which we look at the world. We use Revelation 13 as a focus check to fix our eyes on the Lamb and not on the imposters. We are called to endurance and faithfulness, faithful testimony, as it says in these passages. Faithful testimony, which means to proclaim the Lamb, to follow the Lamb wherever he goes, to keep telling the story of Jesus over and over and over. And the way that Jesus died, and the way that his blood prevents the need for other blood to be shed, we faithfully proclaim the testimony of the Lamb. We are faithfully to accept what God sends to us. Like Jesus, and like Paul, and like John, the revelator, whether it be imprisonment or death, if that's what's to come, that we faithfully accept it because we know that our hope is secure in the Lamb, that we are faithful in worship, that we worship the one true God, the one who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water, that we are the ones who obey God's commands and are faithful to Jesus. This is Revelation 14, verses 7 and 12. Worship the one who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water, where the dragon even stands on the shore of the earth and the sea and calls forth a beast from the sea, where the dragon calls forth a second beast from the land itself. We worship the God who made that sea, who made that land, who made the springs of water, who made the heavens, who made everything. We follow him and his commands. We worship him alone. And then, in chapter 14, those who obey and worship God alone are called blessed. They will rest from their labor. Their deeds will follow after them. And so we use this story as a check, as a focus, to remind ourselves to worship the true God, to proclaim the Lamb, to be faithful unto death, to be witnesses of Jesus' way in the face of many dark powers, whether they are obvious. Dun, 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 dun. Or whether they are subtle and hidden. We are called to witness to Jesus. And so we do. And so we pray. Like Paul asked for prayers for himself in prison, pray for me. Let's pray for each other. Let's, you pray for me and me pray for you. That we'll be faithful ambassadors, even if in chains, to witness to Jesus Christ 
I've written a prayer for us this week, and if you would like it, uh, you could just listen to this once or twice and write it down. It's very short. But I wrote this prayer especially for us to pray at the end of this lesson and this little series about Christians and government, where we've talked about everything from submitting to government because God has established it, to our loyalty only being and ultimately being to God, to even viewing the world through these stories that faithful Christians wrote to help us parse evil power from healthy power. So as we wrap this series up, let's pray together. Pray for me, I pray for you, and let's pray these words. God our King, you alone are God. You are beyond compare. Beside you is no other. Grant us wisdom to discern your unique presence from those who would imitate you and so deceive us that we may endure and be found faithful to you alone through the seal of the Holy Spirit and the Lamb who is Christ our Lord. And together the church says, Amen.